Hey, and welcome to the teaching podcast of Calvary Chapel, Newcastle. At Cows, we like to keep things simple. We are committed to verse-by-verse teaching through the Bible to help people know, love, and become fully committed followers of Jesus. It is our prayer and hope that this message challenges, encourages, and equips you to that end. In the early 1800s, around this place called Barnsley in Yorkshire, God's own country, a woman named Amelia, the wife of a pharmacist who was called James, was intensely burdened to pray for her son. Her son, well, he knew and at one point he even enthusiastically believed the message of the Bible, had been, become very disenchanted in his teenage years with any sort of religion. And Amelia, being a woman of intense spiritual conviction, committed herself to praying. One day, that son, for whatever reason, set about reading a gospel tract called Poor Richard. And he intended it just to read it as a story, and anything that he thought was spiritual or unbelievable, he was just going to skip over it. But later, he wrote it in his journal. He says, little did I know at that time what was going on in the heart of my dear mother. Seventy or eighty miles away, she rose from the dinner table that afternoon with an intense yearning for the conversion of her boy. She went to her room, turned the key in the door, and resolved not to leave that spot until her prayers were answered. He goes on to say that his mother prayed for hours, just constantly, extraordinarily, right about the same time that he decided to read that tract. And as he read it, he was struck by this sentence, the finished work of Christ. He thought to himself, what's finished? But then in that moment, all of his Bible study, all the things that he knew from before came flooding in. He said a full and perfect atonement, the satisfaction for sin, the debt was paid by the substitute. These are the things that flooded into his mind. And he says, Christ died for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sin of the whole world. He recounts that if it is finished, then what more is there to do? There's nothing more to do but fall down on one's knees and accepting as this Savior his salvation and then to praise him forevermore. So, while this ordinary, faithful mother was on her knees praying for her beloved son, he fell to his knees praising our beloved Savior. Through this experience, not only did he come to see the extraordinary power of the cross, but also the extraordinary power of God to work through ordinary people and their ordinary, everyday, faithful life, especially when they commit to praying. This man was Hudson Taylor. He set off to study medicine and then Latin, Greek, basics of biblical Hebrew. He picked, up a couple, uh, he picked up a copy of the Gospel of Luke in Mandarin and taught himself the meaning of over 500 characters by painstakingly cross-referencing with his English Bible. And then he served the Lord by practicing medicine and proclaiming the Gospel in China. And eventually, the Lord prompted him to start China Inland Mission. Now, last week, 
Mick took us through verses 1 through 10 of chapter 19 of Acts, and he spoke about how more than simply offering salvation from the penalty of our sins, which is of utmost importance, God in Christ Jesus offers us new life freely. How easy it can be for us to miss the fact that the everyday, ordinary miracle, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, doesn't just result in new life. It is new life. And it is that new life that those who are Christians possess by grace through faith. So what is our passage, which takes place in this crazy place called Ephesus a few thousand years ago, have to do with a family from 19th century Barnsley, UK. Well, quite simply, this family was pretty ordinary, including Hudson, until God got a hold of his heart and his mind. They were quite ordinary, and Hudson was quite ordinary, until he exalted Jesus as his Savior and worthy of worship and praise. He was quite ordinary until he responded in faith experiencing an unworldly transformation. And he's quite ordinary until, as a result, God worked the most extraordinary things in him and through him. And that's exactly what we see here in Acts 19 in our passage, the extraordinary work of God. And while our passage records events in Ephesus about 2,000 years ago, it's a picture of the work that God wants to do in and through each of our lives today. So to look at this passage, we're going to look at three extraordinary aspects of God's plan to use ordinary people to do extraordinary things. And as He does this, He will bring His new life to the ends of the earth as we are faithful to exalt Him in everyday life. So our outline is verses 11 and 12, we've got the extraordinary work of God. Verses 13 to 17, we have the extraordinary name of Jesus. And the final two verses, 18, and t- 18 to 20, or three verses, we've got an extraordinary response. So let's cut to it. In verses 11 and 12, Paul is faithfully carrying out everyday life. By day, he's working with leather. He's making tents, dabbing the beads of sweat off of his head with whatever cloth is around him wiping tanning oils and perhaps even blood from the odd cut onto his apron and then just discarding it. Most likely, we know this from Scripture, he's constantly rejoicing. He's praying and in everything he's giving thanks. Or so um, we can reasonably assume from verses like 1 Thessalonians 5, 16 to 18, where he exhorts everyone, all of those who are believers, which also means us, Um, to be praising Him because this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. He's probably evangelizing and speaking to anyone and everyone about this salvation by grace through faith in the finished work of Christ on the cross. For Paul, his work was a platform, and it was also a key part of his witness. In the afternoons and in the evenings, he would be teaching new believers, as we, we saw last week, he was constantly in the hall of Tyrannus. So while he's teaching them, he's shepherding them in order to, Ephesians 4, verses 12 and 13, to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of faith 
and the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Again, thinking of that new life is something we live out today. It's not just something we will receive sometime in the future. And then, while all of this is happening, the strangest things begin to happen. People start taking his sweat rags and his aprons to the sick and to those possessed by unclean spirits. And, verse 12, their diseases left them and the evil spirits came out. So what's happening here? Verse 11, God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul. See, it's not Paul. It's God working through Paul as Paul is faithfully going about his ordinary everyday life, exalting Jesus in the workplace, in the teaching halls, probably any market or any shop that he went into as well. Now, many English translations here use the word miracle. In the Greek, it's dunamis, or dynamis. We don't really know how it was pronounced because it's kind of a dead language, but uh, as in it's not spoken anymore. But dunamis, it means power or ability. Now, we all have powers and we all have abilities within reason. For example, Tony, he uses tools to make pieces of wood into, say, a platform, or to build an extension onto a house, or to renovate an entire backyard. Now, from my perspective, that's some ability. But God's dunamis is quite different. See, Tony needs existing materials. But God's dunamis is something that he brings into this world for the, to reveal his purposes and then to carry those purposes out. The word dunamis is also used throughout, uh, throughout Scripture for miracles, both those done by Jesus and by the apostles and other Christians in the name, the power, and the authority of Christ. So a miracle is God bringing something into this world that wasn't otherwise here. In that case, every miracle or every miraculous work is extra material. It is supernatural because God is spirit. And we know that from, uh, from John 5. In Acts 19, God is working extraordinary, unusually powerful miracles through Paul. They're unusual in that they are specific to the time and the place in which he has Paul working, in that context. And it's through those things that God wants to exalt himself in the way that he knew the Ephesian people needed to hear in order to truly respond. Now, these miracles, they occur both in the material realm, the diseases left them. They also occur in the spiritual realm, the evil spirits, came out of them, were driven out. Now, since the Lord created all things, spiritual and material, all things are His. All things fall under His authority in all of creation. So, it's not surprising that in this passage, we see an ordinary man, Paul, faithfully ministering, and God working extraordinary miracles through him, both in the material realm, healing the sick, and the spiritual realm, with evil spirits coming out of people. And here's an application for us. We never know how God is going to use our ordinary, consistent, faithful work to bring about His extraordinary 
miraculous work in the life of another. It may be a material miracle, like an impossible healing. It may be relational, like a restored relationship, a revival of a failed or a fledgling marriage, or a fractured friendship. It may be spiritual, like when we are first convicted of our sin and the need of a Savior. We hear about Jesus, we believe, and instantly receive that new life that He promised us. Whenever God works, He can take our ordinary and make it extraordinary for His glory. So Paul is in Ephesus. It's a city that is renowned for dabbling in the spiritual realm and, he, and the use of magic the need for exorcisms and protection against evil spirits is historically, it says it was, it was rife. The use of magic spells and incantations was so prevalent that it became known as Ephesia Grammata. Who knows if that's a pronunciation? But Ephesian words, it was so common. And these words, these magical spells, were inscribed onto all sorts of objects. There are a bunch of others that I had, that I've, images that I found as well of like clay pots and plates and cups and all sorts of different things with these magic spells and incantations scripted and inscribed and etched into them. Magic in Ephesus was used for virtually everything in society, from bringing healing to resolving problems in business deals to relationship issues, political disputes, and even, oddly enough, athletic competition. There was, allegedly, an athlete called, called Alexander from Ephesus. He was competing in the Olympics, and he, he was a boxer, and he just easily dispatched every single opponent that came up against him until someone found some Ephesian grammar, something with these spells written on it, tucked into his clothes. They removed it, and he lost three matches in a row. Or so the, go the story goes. Given the prevalence of magic and its use in ordinary, everyday life in Ephesus, the question naturally arises, was Paul just another powerful magician, maybe more powerful than everyone else around him, or was he, as he claims to be, a servant of the Most High God? And that leads us to our second point of the outline, verses 13 to 16 and then 17, the extraordinary name of Jesus. See, here we are introduced to Jewish exorcists who they see how powerful Paul must be. I mean, even his sweat rags are healing the sick and driving demons out. So, apparently, he is very powerful. Now, according to Craig Keener, magical exorcists often invoked the names of higher spirits to cast out the lower ones. According to magical theory, exorcists could coerce a deity or a spirit to do their will by invoking its name. Ancient magical texts show how many exorcists were Jewish and drew on the knowledge of Judaism, and these texts include every possible permutation of the vowels and guesses for pronouncing the unpronounced name of God, the God of the Bible. So, their logic of the time is if they can figure out the name of a more powerful spirit and come up against a less powerful spirit, then the more powerful trumps the less powerful and they can drive it out. And we'll see that happen in this passage. 
these Jewish exorcists, see what Paul's doing. He's making tents and he's talking about Jesus a lot. So in keeping with their ordinary practices of spiritual warfare of the day, they presume this name of Jesus must be very powerful. But Jesus, or in Hebrew, Yeshua, it's pretty common, like Joshua. Thanks, Josh. Object illustration. Love it. See, these men, when they say a common name like Joshua, they want the spirits to know, the spirits that they're trying to overpower, to know which Joshua or Yeshua they're talking about. No, it's, it's not Jesus, the son of the blacksmith over there, and no, it's not Jesus, certainly not Jesus, the son of the tax collector over there. It is Jesus who Paul proclaims. So in verse 13, they add the name of Jesus to their ordinary magic incantation in an effort to win over this evil spirit by saying, I adjure you by Jesus whom Paul proclaims. Cool, underlines are there. In verses 14 and 16, it records one particular event where certain exorcists try this tactic. And I just want to make a couple of observations in this section. Firstly, there's the response of the evil spirit. There's a reversal of power. And the result is that these men are driven out naked and wounded. In verse 14, the demon says, Jesus I know, and Paul I recognize, but who are you? The spiritual powers know Jesus. In Mark chapter 5, verse 7, we have this account of legion. This unclean spirit called Legion sees Jesus, and his response is, what do you have to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I adjure you, by God, do not torment me. Do you catch that? This unclean spirit is trying to use God's power to gain authority over Jesus so that he will not be sent to a to place of eternal torment. This passage shows how ordinary spiritual beings recognize Jesus has extraordinary authority to pronounce judgment over all spiritual forces. As Paul would later write to the believers in Ephesus in Ephesians 1, 21 to 23, Jesus is far above all rule, all authority, all power and dominion, above any name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the age to come. And he, God, put all things under Jesus' feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. In Scripture, terms like rulers, authorities, powers, and dominions often refer specifically to ordinary spiritual beings who have been granted a measure of influence in this material realm, but they are using that influence against God in opposition to God. Now, these spirits also know that their time is limited. For God the Father has exalted Jesus and given him a name which is above every name in Philippians 2. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow. Those that are in heaven, those that are on the earth, those that are under the earth. And every single tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. See, the powers know Jesus. They fear their destruction, which God proclaims of them in Psalm 82, verses 6 to 8. 
Jesus speaks of in Matthew 25, 41. And now that Christ is physically raised from the dead, He's ascended into heaven, He is seated at the right hand of God the Father, they know their time is up and it's coming. So what's their game plan? It's to survive. In Romans 11, verses 25 to 27, Paul shows how God uses the unbelief of the Jews to make salvation available to all people, Jews and Gentiles alike. And he says that when the fullness of the Gentiles has come in, Christ will return. This time, he will not come as a suffering servant as he has come. He will come as a conquering king to bring truth to bring righteousness, to bring justice, and to banish all oppositional spiritual powers to their eternal destruction. So how does this apply to us? Sounds pretty nebulous. Sounds pretty celestial. We're terrestrial. How does it apply? Simply this. True spiritual warfare is not using incantations or even prayers to try and drive spirits out of a room or out of people True spiritual warfare is proclaiming the gospel. It's allowing people to hear the truth. So some become believers in the extraordinary name of Jesus, receiving new life, so they can multiply that new life as God takes ordinary and He makes it extraordinary. As Mick said last week, if you and I want to see the Holy Spirit working powerfully we need to put ourselves in situations where people will become believers. The evil spirit in Acts 19 knew Jesus, recognized Paul, because Paul was in Christ. Paul was indwelled by the Holy Spirit of God, and God was using Paul mightily. It was clear that this new life of Jesus was at work through Paul, but to these exorcists, he says, but who are you? See, it's obvious that they didn't know who Jesus was. They didn't believe in his message. They had no relationship with him. They were trying to use his extraordinary game, sorry, his extraordinary name for their own gain. Now, this is a principle that we can apply rather than a, than a direct truth from the text, but you and I can fall, to that same, fall prey to that same counterfeit just as these sons of Sceva did. We're reminded in 1 Corinthians 13 that we can love people, we can be gracious, we can be kind, we can do that in our own strength. We can even speak the truths of Scripture, exhorting and encouraging one another in our own strength. And we can even perform ministry activities like evangelism or teaching Scripture in our own strength. But when we're not walking in relationship with Christ, any of, our, any of the powerful working that He does in us is from Him, really in spite of us. As Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13, it's all empty and meaningless and powerful, really powerless if it's done by our own power lacking the love and the life of God. 
and he may well use it. But if he does, in those type of circumstances, and it's for his glory, but it, it's in spite of us. So with these seven sons of Sceva, trying to use Jesus' extraordinary name for their own, their own gain, what happened? They try to gain power and dominion over this spirit, but instead, they are overpowered and they are dominated, and that is the reversal. See, instead of driving out the demon, they were driven out naked and wounded and likely incredibly shamed. Now, there's another story in the Bible where humans encounter a divine being and end up found being naked and ashamed. But that story has an entirely different ending because it's got an entirely different beginning. It's all the way back in the garden when Adam and Eve distrust the known voice of God who they had a relationship with and they decide to trust the unknown voice of the serpent. They choose to disobey God and in their sin, they're found naked and ashamed. But instead of wounding them, God points out that their wounds are self-inflicted. And while He figuratively strips them of their fig leaf coverings that they patch together, He doesn't tear strips off them or give them a dressing down. Instead, He covers their nakedness and their shame, not with fig leaves that wither, but with the skin of an animal shedding its blood, an innocent animal in the place of a guilty sinner, as a picture of what was to come, of who was to come. He covers their, their nakedness, and He offers that for us. And here is an application from 1 John 4.1 for, for us. John says, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For there are many false prophets who've gone into the world. See, when we trust the loving, life-giving God as revealed in the Scriptures, and we walk with Him, He can turn our mistakes into miracles. He can turn our… He can make our broken stories beautiful. He can make prophets out of prodigals. He declares us, His redeemed people, by grace through faith, to be His masterpiece in Ephesians 2, 8 to 10. And in us, He begins to reverse the curse to the ends of the earth, that through us, He might multiply peace, reconciliation, and restoration. And when we live that new life, and others see the extraordinary name of Jesus, just as in verse 17, Christ is magnified. And now when Christ is magnified, when He is understood, it leads to an extraordinary response as we see in verses 18 to 20. And it says this, also, many of those who were now believers came confessing and divulging their practices and a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and they burnt them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and found that it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. So many new believers come confessing. The first step in any reconciliation is to confess. 
or admit where we've been wrong. Listen to the truth of the promise of 1 John, 1 John chapter 1, verses 9 to 10. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins, to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make Him out to be a liar, and His Word is not in us. See, confession is agreeing with God. It's choosing to trust His Word, even and especially when it goes against our own thinking or a false idea that we've heard from others, perhaps like a snake in the garden. The believers in Ephesus, they were convicted by the extraordinary name of Jesus. And as a result, they came confessing their sins and divulging their practices. See, this term, it's believed to mean that they took an action that deprived the spells of their power. It made them literally powerless. According to F.F. Bruce, the power of the spells lies in their secrecy. Thus, to divulge them or to make them known is to render them powerless and useless. Think of Alexander, that boxer who is, you know, hiding Ephesian grammar in his boxers and it was pulled out and all of a sudden he started losing. That is essentially some, one of the things that is going on here. They're saying, we don't want this to have power over us anymore. They are divulging their, their practices. In a somewhat similar way to what Paul, Paul says a similar thing in his letter to the, the Philippians. It's similar to what's happening here. They were forgetting what was behind and striving toward what was ahead. And he says this, not that I've already obtained this or am already made perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ has made me his own. Brothers, I don't consider that I've made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining toward what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. And let those of us who are mature think in this way. If any of you thinks otherwise, God will reveal this to you also. So let me ask, are you Christ's own? If you are, are you living like it? Am I living like it? Are we forgetting what is behind, straining forward to what is in the future, what lies ahead, pressing toward that goal? And is there an aspect of life that has power over you that you need to divulge and strip of its hold? Whatever it is, put it under the light of the Word of God. Bring it before Him. Find another faithful, mature brother or sister in Christ that can pray with you, hold you accountable to that, and help you grow to full maturity in Christ. Last week, Mick used this example of the slasher connected to the tractor. He's drawing power from the tractor to do what it was designed to do. You remember that? I don't have the picture. It's a good one, though. I'm going to flip this one on its head. If there is something that we are attached to or that is attached to us, that keeps us from being attached to Christ, we should not treat it like a slasher. We shouldn't drag it around. We should treat it as the junk that it is, the weight that hinders, the sin that so easily entangles us. 
And we should cast it off so that we can run with perseverance the race marked out for us in Christ, which is intimacy with God and effectiveness for the gospel in the new life of Christ. As we read in verse 19, many believers did this. They brought their spell books, their amulets, whatever it was that they depended on to manipulate the spiritual realm, and they burnt them in the sight of all. Notice that. They burned them in the sight of all. They didn't hide them. They didn't bury them so that they could go back to them. Extraordinarily, they burned them. They put them through the fire, which turned them into ash and dust. Practically speaking, these believers are showing they don't want their old ways back. And they don't want their old ways to have power over them. They didn't want to go back to their old ways. The monetary value of that was 50,000 days wages. That's just over 136 years of wages. By today's average daily income, about $263 in Australia, that's $13.15 million worth of magic books, amulets, idols, all sorts of things just sent up in smoke. Can you imagine the societal response in Newcastle? If we were to put over $13 million worth of local art, artisan crafts, this is a hard one for me to say, coffee, <laughs> just, just into the fire, $13 million worth of it, uh, I submit to you that uh, these are key elements of our, the social fabric of Newcastle. Imagine if we did that in order to glorify God and to praise His name because we realized that these types of things were idols. Not saying that they always are, but they can be. I'm pretty sure if we were to put $13 million worth of things that our society loves and depends on and uses in everyday life, there would probably be quite an uprising. But I'm verging on Tony's passage, so I'll just move on. Here's an application for us. The worldly value of the goods committed to the fire. Never to be recovered. About $13 million worth. But the eternal, heavenly value of seeking first the kingdom of God and His righteousness is inestimable. It's unmatched. It's unequivocal. The slogan of the world, I would say, is summed up brilliantly by the priceless campaign. It said, there are some things in life money um, there are some things in life money can't buy. For everything else, there's MasterCard. <laughs> I would say the slogan of the Bible is this. There are some things in life money can buy. But for true life, there is only Jesus. See, the moment that God approached Adam, Adam and Eve, hiding in the bushes, fig leaves falling off them like a tattered extra-large shirt off a toddler, he enacted his plan of redemption and restoration. Figuratively, the animal sacrifice was a way of saying, I've, you, I've got you covered now. It will be paid in full in the fullness of time. At just the right time, by just the right person. As said earlier, that sacrifice 
And virtually every sacrifice listed in the Old Testament was a picture of the innocent taking the place of the guilty, leading us to the picture of who was to come, Jesus Christ, from John, 1, chapter, uh, John chapter 1, verses 29 and 30, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. See, the plan and the power of God is demonstrated through the self-sacrificing Messiah, Jesus, shown not only on his in His sacrifice on the cross and His death in the tomb, but then out of the tomb with His physical resurrection. This was the means by which He could give us His Holy Spirit. And it is a power received by grace through faith in Jesus that allows a person trapped in a world of spiritual evil to literally burn it away. And it allows you and I to do the same. The Ephesians found their treasure in Jesus. They found their value in being in Christ. And they had an extraordinary, extraordinary response. And as a result, the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. As Paul went about his ordinary, everyday life, exalting the extraordinary name of Jesus, God worked extraordinary miracles through him. And as a result, there was an extraordinary response amongst maturing believers and brand new believers. See, God uses this response of ordinary people to cause the word of the Lord, that extraordinary gospel of grace, to increase in influence and prevail mightily all over all other names, all over all other powers, ideologies, anything else, to the glory of God. So as we wrap up Acts 19, verses 11 through 20, we see that in verses 11 and 12, God wants to work extraordinary miracles through you and I. Materially, He wants to heal us of the sin and sickness of this world. Verses 13 to 17, He does this only in and by the extraordinary name of Jesus, who is life. And verses 18 to 20, knowing this truth, what God in Christ has done on our behalf, it requires an extraordinary response, which He will then use to make His Word increase and prevail mightily. First, in our own lives, as we are transformed, as we are mature in our understanding of Him, the understanding and study of the Scriptures, and as we apply His teaching to our lives. And He wants to work out that transformation in us and then also through us to everyone around us, whether that's in our Jerusalem or a bit further afield in our Judea, or even further, maybe there's some, someone here who's going to go to the ends of the earth or has been there and has come back again. We do have quite a few missos here. It's a wonderful thing. So let me ask you this, and myself. Is there any weight that holds you back from Christ? Is there a particular sin that so easily entangles? What would your life look like if rather than hiding it, rather than bearing it, you committed it to the fire. 
if you brought it before God's throne of grace, not fearing that God will strip you naked and drive you away wounded, because He won't, but knowing that if you trust in Him, He's not merely covered your shame and your sin. He's paid it in full, and He has clothed you with the righteousness of Jesus Himself. What would our, look, our lives look like with such an extraordinary response? I think that uh, it was in the journal of Jim Elliot that he said, the world has yet to see what God can do through a man or a woman who is fully consecrated to Him. God, what would that look like if it was us? Maybe, as a result, our lives would look a bit like Hudson Taylor's, a life extraordinarily used by God in another country. Maybe they'd look more like the life of his mother, extraordinarily prayerful in ordinary, everyday life. Both use amazingly. Whatever it looks like, we know that God wants to work his extraordinary miracles by exalting the extraordinary name of Jesus in and through our ordinary lives, and he will do that when we respond to him. Let's go ahead and pray. Thanks for listening to the teaching podcast of Calvary Chapel, Newcastle. If you'd like to check out more of our teachings, please visit ccn.org.au forward slash teachings.